Okay, welcome. Welcome to our lunch uh, event today on European banking supervision, the first 18 months. Perhaps as a housekeeping, there's lots of places here on the side also and also here, so you don't have to sit all the way at the back. You may like to sit there, but you can also sit much closer. It's like school class. And I, I promise we don't bite. <laughs> So, um, so welcome again. Um, this is uh, really an event um, featuring and uh, um, uh, highlighting and not launching, because it was launched last week, uh, a new book um, that um, Bruegel has, has produced, European Banking Supervision, the first 18 months. I hope you all got a copy. Uh, it is a volume edited by uh, Dirk Schoenmacher, uh, a senior fellow at Bruegel, and uh, Nicolas Veron, who's also senior fellow at Bruegel. Um, and um, they not only edited it, but also wrote quite a bit uh, in, the, in, the, in the volume. Um, and uh, the volume also includes uh, country chapters um, by um, nine distinguished uh, scholars that know their countries uh, very, very well. And um, three of them are today uh, with us, uh, namely um, André Sapir, uh, Philippe Tibi, and Miranda uh, Xafa. I hope so, it's. They look uh, like a jury for us, so no. They look on the other <laughs> side, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so welcome again. Um, I think the plan today is to uh, to first have um, a kickoff presentation by by Dirk and Nicola, maximum half an hour. I think we should, if if we manage a bit less, would be would be great. Um, then I want to give. Um, uh, if you allow the three uh, country chapters, uh, chapter authors that are here, each of them one minute to give a flavor really about their country chapter, one or two minutes. Um, and then we have uh, two excellent discussions, and I'm very grateful um, uh, that they have come today. Uh, Mario Nava, who is, uh, of course, the director uh, for financial system surveillance and crisis management <clears throat> at DG FISMA of the European Commission, and Peter Verhoek, uh, head of supervisory uh, affairs um, at ING, so so major major European bank that is directly affected uh, by the new supervisor. Now, in terms of content, I didn't want to make a long introduction on the content, but let me just uh, say um, that there is a forward that uh, has some some of my views on all of this. I think there's basically three quick points I would like to, to, to make here. I think the first one, I mean, there's three major debates about, around banking supervision. I think the first one uh, certainly concerns um, how the ECB has been dealing with uh, non-performing loans uh, in the last 18 months. And I think there is a discussion that one can have uh, on um, you know, the moment at which um, the Italian problem uh, is being addressed. Why is it 2016, not 2015? So I think there, there is a debate around this, because the problem is, is, is quite, no, quite well known, not just in Italy, by the way, in many countries. And we ha I think you have some charts showing non-performing loans. The second really big debate was on, on the handling uh, of, uh, of the, Greek, uh, the Greek crisis and the role the supervisor played in this. Uh, where I personally think the, the supervisor um, did play a good role, a productive role, and not one where um, you know, one can talk about uh, a conflict of interest, um, even though that is something that comes up a lot, um, it, especially in the German debate. Um, uh, but I think any supervisor in, in such a political conflict, as we have seen in 2015, would have had a, a difficult time uh, taking, taking another decision. 
And, and I think the third uh, sort of big policy debate is the one that still continues, um, which is um, the one about how to complete banking union. And uh, this is really, I think, an important aspect of the overall debate. We have now a construction where we have a single supervisor that is in charge of supervision of the banks in the Eurozone. We have a resolution mechanism uh, and a resolution fund that um, you know, goes quite some way towards a really European solution. It's not a full European solution, but it is sort of quite, quite a way on that distance. But we do not have at all a European deposit insurance. And the big debate is not now, of course, about the European deposit insurance. And I would just would like to highlight, and I think there's also different views here among, among the three of us, that, um, of course, um, an incomplete banking union um, has its pros and its cons, but there's certainly some fragility inherent into uh, uh, having a banking supervisor but no uh, banking, uh, banking uh, deposit insurance at the European level. I think this, this creates inevitably creates tensions uh, between um, the supervisors and the national levels uh, and is a cause of concern in the sense that um, banking union is not complete. Um, we still have some fragmentation um, in, in the financial system, in the banking system. We still have some difficulties um, ending ring fencing um, and so on. So I think it's really uh, still a suboptimal level. Arguably, and I think, Nicola, you make that point, it's an improvement towards um, what we had before, but arguably it's also still fragile and so incomplete and something that needs to be addressed. I think this is sort of my, my three uh, content uh, um, introductory points. Uh, I think I, I should conclude my introductory remarks by, by really thanking uh, the two editors and authors, but also in particular the nine country authors who really did an excellent job. And not only did they write their own chapters, I think they really also acted as a group. So there, this was really a group of people that met once or twice, or at least by phone, because we had a problem with a terrorist uh, um, uh, situation in Brussels. But I mean, in, in principle, they met, they discussed um, their research, they learned a lot from, uh, from each other. And I think uh, one of the interesting things when reading this book is also that you see that similar problems emerge and similar analysis emerge in different countries, even though sort of the background is very different, but the, the underlying story sometimes is, is quite, quite comparable. And I think that that is really the richness of the report, and I really encourage all of you uh, to read the report, to read the general chapters, but also the, the country-specific chapters and see what echoes uh, and how the things, uh, stories are the same and how, uh, how stories are different. So without much further ado, I think I give the floor to the two editors and authors. I think, Dirk, you, you start? Okay. And by the way, Dirk is a senior fellow, not a visiting fellow. Uh, I think there's a mistake on the, uh, on the chart here. Okay. Okay. Thanks, uh, Kuntram, and good to see so many of you. And there are only microphones at the tables, but uh, when we have uh, questions later on, then there will be uh, people walking with the microphone so everybody can participate in the discussion uh, later on. And to start off, um, this has really been a very nice project because uh, many of us, uh, I think all of the authors of, of the book, have written about the, the making of the banking union, and now it is really different. How is it working? So there's really something different. And I think, uh, as for a think tank as Broekel, that it's extremely important if we do a major institutional reform that we get an independent assessment uh, of how it is functioning as input for 
further policy making. Um, and it was also very nice to do because it is really uh, interesting to see. And as Kuntram said, the difference between the country and the euro area perspective is sometimes quite stark. And I think that's the nice thing of this two-level perspective, uh, which we adopted in the booklet. So to start off, we will explain about, a bit about how the new system looks like, including uh, the banking market. I only show one table, but we have lots of statistics in the, in the book, and we suggest that next year uh, the ECB should do it. They should be more transparent uh, about uh, the makeup of the banking system. We now only have a list of banks, and that's it. We have three criteria uh, when we uh, how to look at uh, that's our assessment effectiveness how tough are they and are they fair and then secondary we look at efficiency and what is happening with the internal market and then our overall assessment is uh, the system has made a compelling start but there are some challenging uh, challenges uh, to be met so we are not yet uh, finished I think so, so. And then uh, the country reports with, where Nicholas will say a bit more about, which shows major differences. So the new system. Um, the ECB is having direct uh, oversight on the significant institutions, and we try to avoid... Yarcon. So the, the first version of uh, the title was SSM, Single Supervisory Mechanism. Uh, but on purpose, uh, we avoided that because I think like we talk about European monetary policy rather than the European system of central banks, which we did the first few years, it is important that we in normal layman terms explain the system rather than that we do it only for the insiders who read the legal text. So uh, on purpose, we try to use uh, as much as possible common wording. So direct supervision on the significant banks uh, that are one tw 129, and we detail uh, in table six in the book, uh, we give all the details, capital ratios, assets, uh, type of institution. And then there are more than 3,000 smaller uh, banks, less significant institutions, where the national supervisor is still doing the job and the ECB is overseeing it although the ECB has some direct powers, uh, like on authorization and on other issues. So in the overview chapter, that's the first chapter, we mainly look uh, at the direct supervision. So the interesting thing of doing research is always that you uh, come to new findings which you didn't uh, expect in advance. So when we started off, uh, Nicholas uh, made this list of uh, three groupings. So these are only 100 banks because the other 29 are subsidiaries or branches from foreign banks from outside the euro area. So these are the 100 significant banks within the euro area with the head office. And then what you really see is that we really have um, uh, one third each, one third commercial banks, one-third cooperative and one-third government. And of course, you can see, like, uh, because of the nationalization and the crisis, we have 10 extra government banks. And like in my country, ABN AMRO is now going back to the market. So we hope to see less of that in the future. But 
it is really uh, interesting to see that uh, normally you think of a banking system of 90% uh, commercial banks. That's not the case. So it's not only in Germany and Austria that you have sparkassen and cooperatives. It is across Europe where you see cooperative banks. And um, so that was for us an eye-opener. And the second thing is only half of the banks, and that are the first commercial dispersed ownership, are listed. Uh, so that means that quite a lot of banks are not listed. Uh, and uh, that means there's also often less information available. Okay, Kuntram mentioned um, the issue of non-performing loans. And that's, of course, uh, the key indicator to you uh, to look what's happening in the banking system. And what this picture is telling you, the countries who did a major reform, restructuring, and recapitalization, like Spain and Ireland, so the orange um, and, the, and the, the purple one, they're going down, so they've swallowed the pill. But then you see things improving, and we all know that also economic growth is picking up in these countries. The countries who have not fully swallowed the pill, but a little bit lingering on, uh, Greece, uh, Italy, and Portugal, you see uh, that the non-performing loans are still there, and we also know that economic growth is not doing extremely well. And then we compare it with the core countries that are all the other uh, countries like Austria, Germany, Netherlands. And, uh, and so the important lesson is from this graph is you better take early action, although Spain was also not that early, but better take tough action if you do it, because then uh, the benefits come later. Uh, and okay, we go to our five criteria. The first one and the most important uh, one is, of course, is it effective? Huh? It's about cross-border supervision. And then these uh, joint supervisory teams are really very effective because we all know home and host supervisors not really telling each other when something goes wrong because otherwise the other one will start ring-fencing. So you have an incentive to be nice to each other as supervisor but not really tell details because otherwise the other will start ring-fencing, so the system was not really working together, so on paper everything was fine, but... And now there is a clear line of uh, command, uh, the ECB is in charge, and then uh, you have sub-coordinators uh, in the home country and in some other major countries, and that is extremely helpful to get an overall, what we call joint-up, consolidated view uh, of the banks at the euro area level, rather than at and fragmented country level. And in that, the ECB has been extremely successful in setting this up. Uh, we signal one uh, conflict of interest. If you're working, uh, for example, uh, let's take, uh, for example, Santander, then um, you have the coordinator at the ECB, you have the sub-coordinator at the Bank of Spain. And if you are in the team from Spain, uh, you have some loyalty to your boss in Spain because the, he's paying your salary and deciding about your promotion and you have to deliver information to the coordinator in Frankfurt. So we signal, we haven't seen it, this problem, but we signal it as an issue uh, could be uh, a conflict of interest. Um, and finally, 
Uh, and very importantly, um, many people talked, and there are many papers written about uh, monetary policy and banking supervision uh, together. Uh, that must be a nightmare. Uh, and what we have seen so far is uh, a the physical thing. So they are in a separate building, a separate supervisory board. Of course, the Covenant Council is endorsing the decisions, but it's really separate. And well, monetary policy is quite loose. I don't have to explain that to you. Um, but banking supervision, I will show on the next slides, <coughs> is really been tough. So in that sense, and I say so far. So uh, I hope they will continue to do that. So that is not a given. But so far, uh, we've seen that there is really a separation between the two mandates and uh, that they take separate, uh, that they do them separately and properly. The next one is, um, how tough are you? And in each country chapter you will find, and in the overview chapter, the new system is more intrusive. So they ask more data, they ask follow-up questions, and to summarize, uh, well, they don't say pain in the ass, but what they say is that it is really a lot of work and a lot of data requests, overlapping data requests, and they are really on-site visits for some countries that's new. So it is far more intensive. What we also notice is there is less capture of the regulators by uh, the banks because of the distance. Um, the supervisory coordinator is now basically, and I don't mean it negative, but an, uh, the 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 director level, not at the top level. So, and 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 somebody from another country who you don't know very well. So this thing that you easily phone the supervisor if uh, if you have a problem, these times are gone. So uh, it is at a more distance, and the same for political intervention where the ministry normally liaises with the central bank or the supervisor if they want some things getting done. And now that's less, uh, less interference. And officially, the independence is also written down in the SSM regulation. And although our report is quite descriptive, one element where we are quantitative is on capital. And uh, economists always like uh, the principle of uh, uh, revelation, so uh, revealed uh, preference, so you can see consumers by just watching what they are doing. And if you watch what the ECB is doing, that's more capital. And uh, if you like supervision to be serious, as we do, then that's a positive thing. Uh, so not all banks will be extremely happy with it, but if you want to have tough supervision, that's what the ECB is delivering. In that sense, uh, as a newcomer, they make their mark. Uh, SREP scores are higher. Um, if we look at the Greece uh, chapter, uh, they did a good recapitalization. There were lots of concerns in some countries. But in the end, if you look at the evidence, uh, the ECB has demanded a strong recapitalization, and that has been done in Greece. But one complaint. The way the SREP scores are, um, are set, and, and I think Peter Verheugh from ING will say more about it, is for the banks really a black box. So there's really a lack of transparency on how things are done in the, in the towers in, uh, in Frankfurt. And this shows that there's more capital, so you see the bars increasing. And I have to speed up. 
Fair, so we didn't uh, see uh, a country pattern in uh, how the ECB was operating, uh, and, and I think that's good news. Only uh, the systemic buffer set at the national level are still different, uh, and we have a nice picture of that. Some areas for improvement. The real thing, the outcry from everybody is bureaucratic. All decisions go to the supervisory board. And uh, I've worked at the ministry and I was signing off many administrative decisions which didn't go to the minister. Uh, and that's what they have to do uh, at the ECB. So they should delegate powers uh, to get the thing going because people are withdrawing as manager because the, the test takes too long uh, before you get the go-ahead from the ECB. Data-driven, so much uh, data. And on accountability, we also encourage um, uh, the ECB to open up that uh, the European Court of Auditors really can, uh, can uh, have access and, and watch them. Um, Work in progress, um, the, uh, this is the price to book ratio, and normally you want it to be at around 100%. And then you see some countries, like on the first slide, uh, France and Germany uh, 60, and Germany even 40. It's not due to Deutsche Bank, so with and without Deutsche Bank it looks the same. And on the second picture you see uh, Greece at the bottom, but also Italy and Portugal quite low. And that shows we are not yet there if we take the view of the market. Um, so still some work to be done. Finally, um, the aim was to break uh, the bank sovereign loop. So decoupling the banks and the sovereign. Um, and uh, that should lead to an integrated market. Uh, that's not yet happening in the short term. Uh, one thing we were having European banking supervision because then we could do uh, completing the banking union with European deposit insurance and a joint uh, European stability mechanism. Then we could stop ring fencing and that's not getting delivered. So we have European uh, supervision, but the national supervisors still keep on ring fencing and we argue that we hope, if we do it next year or in two years' time again, that we see that going down. And the interesting thing is, will cross-border mergers start to happen or not? That is really the proof of the pudding whether we get integration. And then I hand over to Nicholas. Thank you, Dirk. And um, I, I can only uh, emphasize what has already been said. Uh, we did this project fairly quickly. We started. I don't know, in March or something. Uh, well, no, uh, January or February. Anyway, it was a relatively short production cycle, uh, but, uh, but we learned a lot, and it was also a very pleasant experience. And I want to, uh, again, thank uh, particularly the, the country chapter authors. Um, so the, talking about this, the, the country-level experience is really interesting, and we, we, we feel that the country perspective remains very relevant when looking at this reality of banking union just because the starting points were so heterogeneous. And uh, of course, we ha now have a single policy framework, at least as far as supervision is concerned, 
but when you look at actual issues and actual problems, they are very determined uh, by on a country by country basis. And uh, and the chapters I think do a great job of conveying this diversity of banking system structures, but also of experiences and particularly of perception. So it's like the proverbial elephant in a dark room. Uh, different people touch different parts and uh, think of it differently. And, uh, and I think uh, uh, really uh, we see that for uh, the new European banking supervision. So let me give just a few examples of what I mean here. But I really encourage you to read the country chapters, and not only the chapter on your particular country, uh, because, uh, because it does uh, bring a, a perspective that I think is very enlightening to understand this diversity of different debates. And I think it's one of the, the greatest aspects of sort of value added uh, in, in this uh, project and in this publication. So obviously you have different perceptions whether you come from a program country like Greece, Portugal and Spain versus other countries that didn't have the Troika. Well, in Spain it was not technically the Troika but very similar in practice. Uh, you have countries with many small banks and that's primarily Austria, Germany and Italy uh, all covered in our report versus most of the other countries uh, I highlight France and the Netherlands here but it's actually most of the others where the system is quite concentrated. And this brings very different perception, but uh, it's even more complicated than that because you, in Austria and Germany you have what the uh, European legal jargon now calls institutional protection schemes, which means that local saving banks or local uh, co cooperative banks protect each other in case of failure, which brings a completely different political economy and actually financial stability dynamics compared to a situation where, uh, like Italy, where basically the small banks are on their own. Another distinction is uh, between home and host countries. So Belgium is probably the best example in our uh, collection of member states of a country where a lot of the banking system for different reasons uh, is, belongs to non-Belgian banking groups. And uh, André uh, made, uh, I think, a very um, uh, impressive job of highlighting all the challenges that means for banking union. Con conversely, a lot of the countries still think in terms of home country and are not really prepared to think of themselves as a mix of home and host that should be the case in an integrated uh, banking union. And another important uh, distinction is between countries that recently experienced big supervisory failures. And here are two examples that are particularly prominently covered in this respect in our report is Austria with Supo Alpe Adria and also the Volksbank system uh, where uh, the Supervisor uh, took a lot of uh, criticism, uh, um, uh, backed by evidence, on, uh, on their uh, failings. And also in Portugal, obviously, with uh, Espiritu Santo and Banif and maybe other cases. Uh, so this creates a different dynamic in terms of the relationship to the European supervisory project compared to countries where the supervisor thinks for good or bad reasons that they are doing their work uh, very well. Um, so again, I'm not going to summarize anything here. I'm just highlighting these differences. And I really encourage you to um, read the chapters uh, because they're full of interesting facts and anecdotes and perceptions that I think really uh, bring a lot to the European level debate. Uh, obviously, another uh, important aspect is that there are some countries, and that's primarily Italy and Portugal, where uh, there remain major uh, fragility challenges, not just at the level of this or that bank, but at the level of the entire domestic banking sector, or 
large chunks of the domestic banking sector. And I think when you read the corresponding chapters, you get a sense of this challenge, which is a challenge not only for the countries considered, but as Guntram mentioned in his introduction when he was talking about NPLs, uh, for European banking supervision and for the ECB as well. Let me uh, just conclude by saying, uh, emphasizing also the other points that Guntram uh, mentioned in his uh, introduction, I think it's very important to note, and here's a chapter on Greece by Miranda uh, Xafa is, uh, is very enlightening, that with the crisis in Greece last year, the ECB had its first large crisis to manage, and for a very young institution in their capacity as a supervisor, I think it's remarkable how smoothly in a way that went. Of course, the Greek crisis was not smooth, no. but uh, the, the banking piece of it was actually, uh, I think, very uh, deftly managed. Not perfectly, it's never perfect, but I think it, 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 uh, it deserves notice that there was this ability to face an unexpected situation and to respond in a, in a broadly appropriate manner uh, very big initial test for the uh, SSM. The other thing that uh, Guntram emphasizes is a broader question of institutions and further development. And here I will insist on one thing that Dirk also mentioned, which is there is one of the big criticisms we have, uh, and I think that's an important one, is that the supervisory board doesn't seem to function very well. It's a bottleneck. It is partly politicized. Uh, it's, uh, it still has work to do to become the uh, effective and efficient steering uh, body of the single supervisory mechanism. But by contrast, we didn't found the governing council of the ECB, which has to approve all the decisions, to be a bottleneck in practice. And I think that's an important finding because there were a lot of concerns mm. about the interplay between the supervisory board and the governing council. And actually, the fact that basically we find all the problems we found are at the level of the supervisory board, not the governing council, in, in a way is its own form of vindication of the choice of having supervision in the ECB. And the fact that, yes, there's certainly a debate about whether that should continue to be the case on a long-term basis, and there will certainly be uh, some revisitation of this issue uh, whenever, uh, whenever that happens, there is a treaty revision. But basically, the important finding of our study, and this is not necessarily something that all of us expected to see ex ante, is that at this point, it's not a burning issue. We don't find any dysfunction coming from this uh, coexistence within the ECB. And I'll stop there to give the floor to the country authors. Okay, um, perhaps we can really turn uh, to the country authors for a quick sort of snapshot, you know, what's the main uh, taste, uh, taste uh, takeaway, um, and, uh, and then we come to our discussions, okay? Um, Andre, I think alphabetically you're the first. <laughs> okay, not with my name, but with Belgium, yes. Thanks. Um, so just something, so your name. something very, very brief. Uh, the first 18 months... Uh, were rather quiet uh, as far as Belgium is concerned. Uh, so I needed to find uh, some interesting issues uh, to address. In a sense, much of the excitement that happened in, if one call, call it excitement, that happened in the Belgian banking system uh, took place uh, in 2008 and uh, 2009. So uh, since the SSM was created, it was a rather sort of low uh, period, luckily. Uh, but there are, however, uh, two features uh, that I try to, to emphasize uh, of the Belgian banking system. One is, is the one that uh, Nicolas has already indicated. Uh, compared to the nine countries 
uh, in, the, uh, in the study here, not compared to all of the, the countries in the euro area. But Belgium really stands apart for the ownership of uh, assets by uh, foreign institutions. Two-thirds of banking assets uh, are in the hands of uh, foreign institutions. Uh, the next biggest in terms of share in, in, the, in the studies here is Austria, with only 24%. Uh, in Greece, it's less than 5%. So the Belgian banking system is extremely internationalized and was, before the crisis, has become more so uh, with uh, the crisis in particular, the largest bank, uh, 40s, uh, that has now become uh, foreign-owned. So I, I look in the, uh, in, in the report, what are the implications for the creation of the SSM of that particular feature? The other feature uh, that I discussed and I finish with that is that if you look at the four largest banks in Belgium, uh, BNP Paribas 40s, uh, KBC, uh, Belfius and ING, in that order, uh, and very close to, to one another. Two of them uh, have some uh, public capital. Belfius is 100% uh, owned by the, uh, the state, and BNP Paribas, uh, the mother company of BNP Paribas 40s, the largest shareholder is the Belgian state, although it has only 10%. And that has various, obviously, implications that I try to discuss as well. So let me stop here. Philippe, please. Okay, thank you. Um, arguably, the uh, supervision is, um, with competition, the only federal system uh, within the uh, EU. And being part of a federal system means that you have to manage trade-offs. And I want to give two examples of the trade-offs that uh, how the French have managed uh, two specific trade-offs. The first one is uh, intrusion. You know, the system is quite uh, intrusive, or the more so in France, because uh, system is very, uh, the banking system in France is very uh, concentrated, so all the banking system is supervised by uh, the SSM. It's also very intrusive because the uh, relationship with the SSM is much stricter and much more uh, say, uh, protocoled than uh, what existed before. That was, so that was that has been accepted because um, uh, the French bank generally uh, accept that that has enlarged their uh, parameter, their uh, their um, uh, perspectives, and that, that that has given room to uh, uh, to best practice. And being cynical, they also think that um, being French, that was a way to uh, um, springboard. Uh, to, to be a springboard for French influence. So the first trade-off is uh, intrusion vis-à-vis -vis best practice and, and uh, influence. The second trade-off is, is um, sovereignty uh, versus uh, power, I would say. So uh, the SSM is, uh, is perceived as, as a loss of sovereignty uh, because, the, because, again, it's the whole of the French system which is uh, supervised outside of, of France. At the same time, the critical call for that was one that there should be a, a, a better um, a level playing field in Europe, no ring fencing, because as you know, the French banks are quite acquisitive and they perceived uh, SSM as a way to uh, eliminate the bag, the, the, the zombie banks, and uh, making um, sure that uh, if you operate on a pan European basis, it's uh, easier. So that was the first. Uh, 
uh, element of the quid pro quo. The second element of quid pro quo was that supervision was supposed to uh, improve the price to book uh, the, the, the price to book uh, value ratio because SSM is, um, was supposed to instill a greater confidence within the investment community. So if I may conclude on a, on a frustration, is that the riffing scene is still there. Uh, the price to book value is something like, uh, for the French bank, 0.6, um, which means that they are either that SSM doesn't work well or that they are uh, destroying value every year and as you may imagine, it is not the dominant opinion of uh, the French bankers. So thank you very much. Developments in Greek banking were dominated by politics, as is usually the case. So soon after the ECB completed the comprehensive assessment in October of 2014, the radical left came to power in Greece, triggering very large deposit withdrawals funding pressures, and a sharp rise in non-performing loans as the economy returned to recession and the payment culture deteriorated. Um, after a five-month standoff, the government finally capitulated and agreed to a third bailout under the threat of imminent economic and financial collapse. Uh, the new agreement uh, came with financing of 86 billion euros, uh, 25 billion of which were set aside for bank recapitalization. Uh, in the event, the ECB uh, very quickly and efficiently calculated the capital requirements of Greek banks. And in November of 2015, there was a recapitalization uh, the uh, funding needs, uh, capitalization needs were assessed at uh, 14 and a half billion, of which uh, 14 and a half under the baseline scenario and an additional 10 billion under the distress scenario. Um, so, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, one can debate both the size and the modalities of the recapitalization, but by all accounts, the ECB addressed the task of assessing capital needs uh, with quick efficiency. Um, throughout this period, the ECB assumed that Greece would remain in the euro area. So the ECB had to walk a tightrope between ensuring sufficient liquidity for Greek banks on one hand and ensuring financial stability on the, of the euro area on the other. So this dilemma would exist irrespective of whether a single institution was responsible for monetary policy and supervision or whether there were two separate uh, institutions. Whether Greek banks were solvent in mid-2015 is debatable. I mean, on a static basis, they did meet uh, capital requirements, but on a forward-looking basis, um, it was doubtful that uh, they, they would uh, survive. They were failing or likely to fail. Um, so overall, I would say that the ECB did uh, uh, a very good job under very difficult circumstances. Uh, Greek banks have been recapitalized. Now the um, regulation is in place to permit them to sell loans to distressed debt funds. 
so the NPLs will gradually be resolved. Uh, the ECB is now conducting a survey of the governance of Greek banks in order to make sure that uh, there is no state involvement whatsoever in the day-to-day -day operations of banks. And one final point is uh, a non-systemic bank could not meet uh, the new capital requirements and is now under investigation by the ECB because also um, state-controlled companies were strong-armed into contributing funding for this bank. So in this case, the ECB may have been too slow to take over the supervision. Thank you. Great. Uh, thank you very much. Um, so I think we now turn to our discussions, uh, Mario um, and then uh, Peter. Thank you very much for the invitation and thank you even more for writing the book because honestly, this is one of the things I would have liked to do myself had I not been working for the Commission because I think there is, uh, writing the history of how all these things came about is quite, uh, is quite interesting. I, had I written that book, uh, I think I would have come to relatively similar conclusion, but few things that I'll put on the, that I'll put on the table now. One, where obviously I'm very biased, uh, which I think the book could have emphasized more, is the, is the role of the Commission. And I don't say it just because I work at the Commission, but let me just give you a couple of dates. 29 of June 2012, Heads of State and Government, and as Dirk says very clearly in his chapter, uh, heads of state and government here in Brussels, they ask for the banking union and the SSM on the basis of a, of a clear article in the treaty. 12 of September in uh, Nicosia, I believe it was, in Cyprus, a, um, at the ECOFIN, the commission presents the proposal. So nine weeks and a half, basically, during which, uh, uh, and I think the number of commission colleagues that there are here, for example, Eric, which is hiding at the end of the room, but he, he completely lost his summer to, to draft that. Nine weeks and a half during which had the commission not, uh, not taken the political occasion, probably would not be here to discuss. Let me just recall you, uh, the De La Rosière report, uh, which we all praise and which gave origin to the ESAS and the SRB, concluded by saying times are not mature, full stop. And that was only two years before. So I think the political intuition to take the moment by the Commission was quite remarkable. And the same, and we'll see it in a minute, the same also during the first 18 months of, of infancies of the SSM with, with various and small, small intervention here and there. I believe, as I said, that broadly, most of what you say, uh, I, I share it, the Commission shares it. Interestingly, it's also um, very close to the, to the Parliament opinion, where basically the Parliament opinion of several weeks ago, but not many, seven or eight weeks ago, um, it, I would say it gets to that conclusion, highlighting few points. So now I'm going to highlight few points, but please don't misunderstand me. It's more for the sake of the debate. Uh, then, uh, then for the overall, the overall picture needs to remain needs to remain uh, uh, positive. If I may, actually, even take issue uh, with one thing you write, uh, um, Guntram. Uh, you have a bullet point which reads: European banking supervision makes mistakes. I would have drafted a bit, a bit more um, 
diplomatic was Nicola? Okay, the two of you. Okay. It's good that you are giving default to one another, so it means, uh, <laughs> it means I got the right one. But for example, that I think uh, makes mistake is a bit too much, but clearly there were initial issues that uh, I think they are challenge for the, for, the time, for the time to go. Which are those issues? Issue number one, I, all you, I, I know you all are waiting me on that because it's the one on which the commission uh, heavy the most is the one of MDA, of course. Uh, on MDA, uh, and again here colleagues in the room have helped uh, with that a lot, but on MDA, um, our view was very simple. Our uh, I, I, I always have the self-attributed uh, 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 yes. rule of uh, acronym enforcer, uh, maximum distributable mm -hmm. amount. Exactly, yeah, you are right. The maximum distributable amounts uh, which uh, uh, is the moment where uh, um, there are, let's say, automatic consequences uh, kicking in uh, in, the, in the supervisory discipline. There, our position was very clearly uh, that, the, that the text, uh, the legislative text, which the co-legislators in their full wiseness have, uh, have adopted, allowed uh, for, for different interpretation as it was the case, actually. So not only the SSM on one side, but also other, uh, the Bank of England on the other side, the, the, the Bank of Denmark on another side. So I think there a, a, an intervention was needed. The intervention we made, the paper we, we issued to the expert group, which is now, uh, which is now being worked by the expert group, which was, uh, I think, taken up in spirit uh, very much by the, by the SSM, is clearly what we believe is the most credible and possible interpretation of that, uh, of that particular instance. And we believe it allowed to clarify a lot uh, the interaction between uh, pillar one and pillar two, which is truly at the essence of your book in a way, and is truly at the essence of what you want from a supervisor, being able to, uh, to play well between, uh, between one and the other. And I'm very, very happy that not later than this morning, I read that Madame Nui at the European Parliament Economic Committee, she just said this instrument that we call Pillar 2 guidance is complementary to Pillar 2 requirements. Failing to meet Pillar 2 guidance is not in legal terms a breach of capital requirements. So this clearly is why I say it was not a mistake, but was something that we needed to go through in order, uh, in order to have it. Second point, uh, I don't know, I have a couple of slides, but if they are not there, doesn't matter. Second point is on the on this rep. Uh, here it is, exactly. That's the slide I wanted to show. Uh, here it is on this rep. I'm sure uh, Peter will give us a, a, an insider view, which is uh, what you need to, to hear of that. Uh, we heard uh, uh, Dirk uh, um, pinpointing to the issue of, uh, of transparency of the, of the supervisory uh, process. We all know that, but let's also look at some result. And there is uh, on the graph, on the little graph, you have the correlation between the SREP scores and the capital requirements. Now, in 18 months, the correlation has incredibly increased. So that's, uh, I think, is uh, uh, you can take it uh, as, a, as a rather uh, uh, good indicator of the quality of, uh, of, the quality of supervision and uh, um, of the fact that when we say uh, at the Commission that they've moved from national supervision to, um, 
to, to European supervision, it does also increase the overall quality by controlling better for risk. Well, I think that these slides uh, just, uh, uh, just says it all. And another, another slide uh, that uh, I think I would use uh, when we talk about transparency of the supervisory process and so on and on is this one. The little uh, dots is where banks are. The bar is where banks are asked to be. Now, there is a, quite of a difference between the two. So if you want to claim that uh, uh, banks uh, are not profitable because of uh, too high capital requirement, find another slide. Because I think this uh, does not support uh, your, uh, your claim. Banks are keeping a high amount of capital by themselves, well in excess of what, uh, of what the supervisors uh, ask them. They are doing it for all sorts of reasons, uh, uh, which may go from market access to whatever else. But these are the uh, most significant institutions. Uh, Nicola, I hope you appreciate. I was about to say MSI, but these are the most significant institutions. And uh, all of them invariably, apart a couple to which Miranda referred, are, are, all where they, uh, are all where they should be and well, well above. So I think this is a very clear indication of the ability of the supervisor to be ingrained with the, uh, with the market. Another point that you highlight in your paper, which I think is worth, is worth mentioning, is about the uh, completion of the rulebook. As we all know, this goes under uh, another nickname, which is National Option and Discretions. As we all know, um, again, let's separate uh, what comes from one and what comes from the other. We had a commission proposal, which went into council and parliament with very few national option and discretions. We go through 18 months of council and parliament. Guess what? 137 national option and discretions. And then, of course, the, uh, thanks God, at least we saved the regulation, so it's still a regulation. The ECB has to implement a regulation and finds itself with these, uh, ECB-SSM, with these 137 uh, national option and discretion. Uh, I think there, um, but this is probably was a bit coincident with the writing of your book, but there is an area I would have emphasized of uh, initial challenge being dealt uh, during, the, uh, during the, the, the process and uh, having received, uh, I think, a rather satisfactory, uh, rather satisfactory solution, especially considering the point where we started from. And let us not forget that if we started from 137 national option discretion, is not by chance, but because member states did want it then. So when this was discussed, we did the SSM, okay, it's not the same authority. One is, an, is a ministry, the other is a bank, but still, still uh, some resistance was to be, to be expected. And then maybe another point, and I'm nearly finished, maybe another point is the one on the um, interrelation between micro and macro prudential. Um, there is, a, to be clear, a, a bit of a difficult area because honestly, uh, the, the legislation arrived, uh, again, the macroprudential area, all those who were involved in legislation, remember, was the most disputed because it was really the area where member states felt that something that pertained to them was being taken away uh, because, of course, we had the, the, the legal strength of saying if this is a regulation, any move to the regulation should come from the Commission. Be it as it may, at the end, we arrived with a uh, with a number of macroprudential rules uh, 
which are uh, complicated, so to speak, and which uh, interact uh, not always in the simple possible way with the microprudential rule, especially if uh, the microprudential rules, uh, and then we go back to the MDA discussion, are not fully transparent. So I believe that there there was, if you want, a, a, a conjunction of two problems. One is the transparency, the other is the link micro and macro. And I believe the transparency has been solved uh, with, the, with the MDA treatment. And the macro and the, the link between the macro at the European level and the macro at the national level uh, will also be, be solved soon. Um, so these, I would say, are the main point. There are three, and, and I'm truly going to conclude, there are three points where I believe uh, the, the SSM will be maybe judged in the future but where I believe uh, it may not pull all the lever to be judged. So like often in life, you are judged for things of which you are only partially responsible, but okay, that's the beauty of the thing. One is certainly the, the sovereign bank nexus, or, uh, or uh, if you want, uh, the, um, the way through which uh, you uh, ensure ultimate success uh, in breaking it. I think many things have been done, for sure, the SSM itself, the SRM, the BRRD, the SSM, the ADIS proposal, we'll see how it develops. But I think many, many things have been done to secure both the bank side and the, and the sovereign side so that the links between the two is not yet, uh, uh, is, 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 is not so strong and is a, is a bit severed. But of course, uh, there are still uh, uh, some difficult things uh, ahead. One is the always debating and very difficult uh, issue of the treatment, the regulatory treatment of sovereign exposures and few others. I think these, uh, this issue, uh, which uh, will, will probably dominate the debate soon. The other uh, is the issue of NPL. Guntram refers very well in his, uh, in his foreword, uh, uh, which, I, which, I recommend, uh, which I recommend reading. There, um, there was a, a, a very good graph uh, by Dirk of the NPLs. You see that uh, even if more or less there are things that affect uh, NPLs in equal way, like low interest rate environment or whatever else, the behavior is very different because here is one of those areas where the response really, uh, really matter a lot. Um, and the, the point where we are, we are not, all countries are not at the same point of cycle. So I think that uh, is something where, uh, let's say, country-specific uh, uh, responses uh, may, be, may be needed. And that brings me to the third and last area where I think the, the SSM will be, will be judged against, which is the managing of particular situation. This is a bit the course. The SSM was made for the whole of Europe to move out of the home host debate and so on and on. But it has the course that it cannot be good on average. It needs to be good in every single point. And that's very difficult. Thank you very much. Th thank you very much. That was very clear. Let me turn to Peter then. Uh, thank you, <coughs> Gunther. Um, I... Um, also, thank you for the invitation to give uh, a perspective uh, uh, from uh, a bank being supervised by the ECB. And I thought uh, I can uh, add to uh, or maybe sort of reiterate a few of the observations made already about banking systems and regulation and different policy discussions which are ongoing, etc. 
but I thought uh, I better uh, try to focus on one of the key starting points of uh, uh, the report, which is how does it work in practice. And uh, as a matter of fact, I thought um, I could share with you a few uh, observations of my past 18 months, or uh, even a, a bit longer than those 18 months, in um, uh, getting used to uh, ECB and SSM supervision. So uh, um, it started uh, for us, um, uh, and for us, I should say, at ING Bank headquarters, uh, early 2014, uh, knowing that by the 4th of November should, we should be prepared. Uh, and, uh, well, apart from the need to be prepared, which is obvious a supervisory expectation that you are prepared, we also thought that this uh, banking union promise is, of course, also something where uh, banks uh, can and should contribute. Uh, and that certainly applies to uh, RNG. We have uh, quite a European footprint. So uh, the banking union promise really appeals to us. So uh, in that sense, uh, another incentive to be prepared by the 4th of November and um, for the regular interaction with the ECB. Um, now, if you start with that question, it is not really easy to answer because, of course, you have all the regulations and you have your past practices, but my past practices mainly on uh, the Dutch situation <coughs> based. Um, and uh, apart from those regulations and that uh, past experience, there's not much yet in 2014 about the ECB approach to European ECB SSM supervision. So uh, you have to try to figure out. And uh, we did by meeting a lot of people. And um, sorry. Uh, uh, trying to uh, follow the different speeches and uh, at some point the key features of the uh, SSM and the ECB organization became clear, especially uh, the way they would organize their joint supervisory teams and that was an interesting angle to take because as a matter of fact we sort of tried to mirror that. So we have a central team in Amsterdam and we have different other teams in the different countries, which normally had their interaction with their uh, local NCA, but now are uh, becoming part of our team to interact with the ECB. And that is gradually how we uh, uh, started our internal preparations for <coughs> the 4th of November. Um, then the first year, um, so say 2015, um, uh, there was still, say, little written about the approach the ECB would take in actual practice. What, how would we meet with them, encounter? How is the process of an on-site inspection? Those were described in uh, uh, the Guide to Banking Supervision, of course, but uh, those who have read it, uh, it is indicative, but not necessarily uh, giving uh, all the uh, handles for preparing in actual practice. So uh, I think... Uh, we learned a lot by doing. Um, and um, I assume a little bit of the same applied to our uh, ECB uh, Joint Supervisory Team uh, staff as well. They learned by doing as well. Uh, they came together, 
only by November or even uh, early January. So uh, a lot was new, and for those uh, in that team, it was also new to supervise uh, a bank like uh, ING. So a lot of the interaction is uh, in the first year is, of course, about uh, getting to know the bank and getting into the details. Indeed, a very detailed uh, request, uh, the starting of uh, on-site and uh, thematic reviews. Uh, and uh, that is, um, I think, um, uh, say the learning by doing is probably the best characterization on our side on how to organize and indeed manage the interaction with the ECB. Now this interaction, I don't know, there are a few representatives of banks in this room, but the interaction is not sort of a quarterly meeting. Uh, it, it isn't. Uh, it is, uh, say, on average, certainly weekly meetings, but uh, uh, maybe over two weekly meetings, and the interaction with regard to information requests, uh, all kind of uh, templates you have to fill out, is uh, I have by, by now and my team daily interaction with the ECB on all these kind of operational issues. So it's a quite an intense interaction which takes place. And uh, uh, as is also observed in, uh, in the report, um, it is in that sense much more intensive than uh, at least my experience was in the years before uh, in the local uh, domestic uh, uh, setup. Um, I think um, what we are doing now on our side is sort of capitalize on the lessons learned of the first year, uh, try to be uh, even better prepared for the interaction. And I think the same is uh, true in general on the ECB side. Uh, the teams know each other. Uh, there is, uh, as also uh, uh, observed in the report, uh, a, speciali a specialization taking place in the joint supervisory teams. And that means that the interaction is uh, not only, let's say, at the initial stage, but gets into uh, the deeper details of day-to-day -day banking operations. Um, <clears throat> with regard to um, the, the specific um, comments maybe on the report, so this is a little bit my highlights of uh, the first 18 months in day-to-day -day practice. <coughs> um, there's maybe one thing I should add, because that was uh, alluded to, to by, the, by two previous speakers, that uh, indeed there is the annual SREP process which uh, the ECB conducts and uh, the uh, banks are uh, delivering information for, especially their ICAP and ILAP submissions, as they are called in the jargon. I'm not going to spell them out. <laughs> uh, <coughs> and... Um, uh, I think uh, a common observation uh, in, say, the summer of last year was indeed that it is perceived as a black box. Uh, we get feedback from the SRAP process, but um, uh, how sort of the assessment uh, came to that conclusion uh, is <coughs> a little bit of a black box, at least last year. Uh, but that is certainly not the case anymore. Um, uh, the ECB has made an effort uh, early this year to explain much more in detail what the different building blocks are, are and even uh, the sort of the sub-building blocks uh, for their assessment, uh, also indicating where they use their own information and analysis and where they use the bank's information and analysis. Um, uh, they organized uh, specific meetings with uh, the banking sector to uh, make sure that everybody is aware of that. Um, so uh, there you see, and that also ties in with one of the observations of the report, 
uh, that transparency after the first year, year is gradually growing. And uh, apart from uh, publications on uh, SREP and ICAP and ILAP guidance, uh, that takes place on other issues as well. So uh, in this second year, we see much more information coming from the ECB, which is relevant for my day-to-day -day job to uh, manage the interaction um, with the ECB. Um, <clears throat> May, uh, maybe a few comments uh, uh, on the report as such. I think it's very timely. It was also said by, uh, by uh, Marionava. Uh, and I think uh, in the short term it is uh, timely because uh, it is a right of, of lessons learned. It's an early check whether uh, sort of uh, how it was all uh, designed, whether it indeed works. And maybe it gives us an opportunity to... Um, uh, make changes early in the process instead of waiting for another five years. Um, um, and I think it is also good, as the report do, does, uh, to articulate what uh, needs still to be done to make the uh, banking union promise become a reality. I think it's also, uh, maybe for the long term, a very relevant document, uh, because, uh, as indicated, it's a game changer or it's a really an institutional reform. And the report, I think, will at some point, but that is further in, in the future when historians maybe look back. Uh, but then it adds to the body of knowledge and documentation about this major change in banking supervision in Europe, I think. Um, there was one observation, and I think in the report, and it's only um, maybe you, uh, you easily read it in passing, but uh, I think uh, it is... Uh, for uh, the ECB and for the NCAs involved, uh, uh, really an accomplishment that it was a very smooth transition. Uh, there, a lot had to be done in 2014. Uh, it has to do with, with responsibility, with tasks. You take your responsibility serious. Uh, and I think uh, uh, all involved really uh, managed to uh, have this smooth transition. Um, then um, the report... Uh, alludes a few times on different aspects of the dynamics between the ECB and the NCA or between the ECB, say, European regulation and local regulation. And uh, maybe to flag two specific elements of that, uh, I think they weren't mentioned in the overall uh, uh, chapter, but maybe in the country chapters they, they might be alluded to. But... Um, uh, in the area of operational supervision, what you note is that um, local NCAs still have local responsibilities for certain areas which you could uh, sort of label as banking supervision. So it's not prudential supervision, but uh, an example of that is in most countries, anti-money laundering regulation is still being supervised by often, previously, the banking supervisor. So there is an interaction with banks on this specific issue. It's still, say, fragmented over countries. Um, and the question is a little bit, what kind of a gray area does it entail with regard to, eventually, the ECB responsibilities and tasks, because they have a responsibility also with regard to risk management on conduct and legal risk, etc. So that is uh, uh, one of those. And the other one has to do with uh, more the domestic banking regulation, uh, those have, they all should and often, they, they will apply uh, and comply with uh, EU regulations, but nevertheless, they have their own history. And bank, banking supervisors have built up their own 
good practices, which for a part may be reflected in this regulation. And what you see is that a lot of those, say, very country-specific uh, requirements still apply. So there you see an interaction with the NCA or, and then the question arises, so another sort of gray area, uh, is it now something which the ECB is responsible for? And uh, those are the things which sort of you encounter in the operational practice, as I do. Um, often they can be ironed out, but I think it, at some point it should also be part of the banking union promise that those are uh, sort of gone. Um, leave it at that, because we only have 20 minutes for you now. Eh? <laughs> Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I think you, you've heard a lot um, of different perspectives um, and uh, uh, an attempt to summarize a book, which is always difficult in an event. Uh, so I think there's lots of material we can discuss. And so let me really open the floor and get your questions, your also comments, if you have specific comments on, uh, on certain topics. And please always do identify yourself. So who would like to, uh, to, uh, to have a first go? The gentleman there, all the way in the back. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> ah. Okay, good. I'm Eric van der Plaats from the European Commission. Well, first of all, congratulations with your book. I think it has a very positive overall conclusion. As uh, some of the stakeholders said, uh, the SSM is an amazing success, if not only judged by the counterfactual, the drama it could have been. Um, I have three questions, observations. One is on the effectiveness, that was uh, what Dirk uh, mentioned. Um, it seems that you have just the effectiveness of the SSM against the previous cross-border cooperation. Um, my question is, why have you not judged the effectiveness of the SSM against the Basel Core Principles of Banking Supervision? Because then you would have had a kind of objective uh, benchmark. The second uh, question, observation is, Efficiency. Efficiency seems to be missing in your uh, benchmarking exercise. I think it is fair to say that these systems should not only be effective, fair and tough, but also efficient. Uh, banks do pay uh, for the supervision direct cost 4,000 euro to 11 million euro or something like that per year. Um, and 830 FDE staff have been uh, allocated to the uh, ECB supervisory task, the SSM. So... Um, well, uh, w what can you say about the efficiency? My third um, question actually is, um, you judge the, the, the toughness uh, by the uh, imposition of additional pillar two requirements, uh, capital requirements, and on page 27 you have a, a neat table showing, I think, the total capital requirements, which shows about 5% uh, uh, pillar two capital requirements. Now my question is, is that not a remarkable outcome that nearly all banks have about 5% additional pillar two capital requirement? If a threat process uh, is a really idiosyncratic process, would we not have expected more divergency in the outcome of capital requirements? Thank you. Um, <coughs> okay, I think we can collect a few more uh, questions because we don't have much time, so. Um, well, Eric stole my first question on efficiency. I was, well, I was wondering how far we could, I mean, you could start benchmarking. Um, I mean, the, uh, you mentioned these data-driven process, and of course, we probably you know overlapping. I mean, possible red tape complained by banks, but also NCAs in terms of data collection, etc. How far we, you could already start 
benchmarking um, the SSM efficiency against, well, uh, in national or third country uh, competing systems to the Federal Reserve Board offers. That's my first question on efficiency. Second question, um, I, I, I must use you know, this disclaimer, I haven't read in detail yet the report, so <laughs> might be there, but uh, on uh, stress tests, um, at least the initial stress tests and then the ongoing uh, comprehensive assessments, more, more limited, in, I mean, at least in geographical ambitions, how far can they act as catalysts for the spreading and convergence of practices? And uh, my third question, uh, how do you assess the potential or ongoing impact of um, ECB guidelines in terms of local supervision of LSIs, including also, of, of course, the, the gray zone of the LSIs, which are close to um, the threshold for systemic institutions? Thank you. Like John Luke, I confess I haven't read the full report yet. But uh, one thing I was... Also, Nicholas Reinhardt of Four Consulting. I think one thing I was interested in is, have you looked at the role of the SSM in coordinating uh, the views of supervisory issues in the Basel Committee? Because that's another important function of the SSM. And obviously, we're seeing important developments in Basel at the moment. So it'll be interesting to see whether you looked at that in the context of efficiency. Well, I mean, I think we, since we don't have okay. much time, let's get all the questions and you take yeah. notes, and then we have one last. Uh, so yeah. so I, I see the gentleman there. Jasper Berking from uh, CREAP. Um, one, one question that I was wondering about that I didn't read so much in what I've been able to read so far is, do you think there is a scope for legislative revision of the SSM regulation? Okay. The, the lady at the back. Uh, Catherine Fior, EU reporter. Uh, I just have a question for uh, well, the, the Commission representative. Firstly, um, you say they've exceeded their um, capital requirements. Um, is that because those capital requirements are far too low? And uh, I'd also maybe like Peter Verhoek to maybe comment on that. Thank you. Okay, um, then I have uh, Jolt Davash and anybody else, um, and Francesco Papa, and the gentleman here, and then we close. Okay. Then let me just have one question. It's related to the relationship between the SSM and non-SSM EU countries. So how do you see the cooperation between both levels at the supervision level, let's say the SSM with the national authorities outside the, the euro area, and also, how do you see the impact on, on banks? I mean, during the crisis, there was a lot of discussion that, you know, Austrian banks and Italian banks, you know, kept their liquidity and didn't uh, support their supervisor uh, <coughs> um, uh, banks in, in, in Central Eastern Europe. Do you think that at least the first 18 months are suggested change in those policies if a new crisis would come? So my question is about the ring fencing, because you mentioned that this is still going on. And in a way, this is surprising, because you would have thought that, uh, I mean, one of the purposes uh, would be to eliminate. Uh, so if you could say something more about it, uh, is it ring fencing on liquidity? Is it ring fencing on capital? And maybe some naming and shaming. Uh, who is most responsible for for uh, risk uh, for for ring fencing? I mean, I guess uh, that uh, these are not equally distributed across uh, the uh, the euro area. So I think it would be interesting to know who is the culprit. 
Okay, uh, thank you. So Francesco Papadia from Bugel. Um, so it was a good, uh, tough question by a colleague. And so please, and yeah. then we close. Um, my name is Moni, uh, European Economic Diplomacy Team. Uh, I have three questions. Uh, one is uh, uh, the following. The first one is the following. On the 22nd of March, uh, the, uh, Madame Nui at the European Parliament introduced or uh, presented the activity plan for 2016 of the SSM. And she mentioned that uh, the mandate of SSM will be broadened to include the macroeconomic analysis and the governance issues of the banks. Do you think that this uh, extension of the SSM mandate is compatible with the original mission of ESSM? Secondly, uh, capitalization, capitalization raised important state aid issues. DG Competition was involved in this, uh, in this matter. Uh, I wonder how this state aid element has been considered. In the, in the case of, of the Greek banks, uh, the, the, state, uh, the state role was played by the Hellenic Fund. In the case of Italy, you have a Casa Depositi Prestiti. How this matter has been discussed with the Commission? The third element, which probably needs to be introduced in your, in your uh, book, uh, refers to the international cooperation. I mean, uh, you cannot have a European SSM operating in Europe without uh, taking into consideration the relationship between SSM Europe with uh, other SSMs in the, in the US, in China, in, in Brazil, in BRICS, whatever. In Europe, we have a, a, a number of important non-European banks now operating. And how are they, are, they, are they assessed? This is the question. Thank you. OK, I think this, uh, we have to close the questions now, because there's a lot of questions already. And I think most were addressed to, to Dirk and Nicola. But I think, Mario, there was also a question for you. and, and Peter, I don't know if you wanted to pick up any any questions. So, so, so perhaps um, how should we proceed time-wise? Uh, perhaps Dirk, you start, yeah. and then I leave then Mario, and then you. Yeah. Okay. okay. Dirk, please. Thank you. To start on the last question, uh, the international one. Uh, surprisingly, there are very little. Uh, large banks from outside the euro area in in the euro area because they're all in London. Uh, so, uh, uh, so for some, there is connection in the supervisory colleges with the U.S. and uh, and, uh, and overseas for the operations of the European banks outside Europe. But surprisingly, we found that the bank union is almost a closed fort. Uh, um, starting with the first one from Eric, the, the question on effectiveness. We saw as the main reason why we had SSM is because we wanted to handle on uh, two things, a sovereign uh, bank loop and on the cross-border supervision. So that's why we took that as a uh, principle. And I think uh, we still, uh, countries are still contributing to the IMF. So if we would assess the core principles, then the IMF has nothing to do with the next FSAP. So we leave that one to, uh, to the IMF. And I think the real thing is, the important thing is uh, that we should have cross-border supervision, whether that's working. Efficiency, uh, I think you're quite right. Uh, two or three questions about it. Uh, Nicholas and I were really doubting whether to put it as a separate uh, criterion, whether yes or no. In the end, we did halfway, because our areas of improvement, you can read as the chapter on uh, efficiency. And um, I think 
I think the huge things, of course, I said this bottleneck on bureaucratic decisions in the supervisory board, this multiple date requests. I think there we see uh, a lot of efficiency issues. The overall functioning of the joint supervisory teams, I would give them a big plus, how efficient that is operating and working together. And uh, whenever I go to the ECB, I also see uh, members from, like, from the Dutch Central Bank going, uh, visiting the ECB because they have a team meeting. So that's working quite seamless. Uh, Scrap um, uh, more divergency, uh, divergency than expected. That's also what we note. I think that the ECB to start off uh, didn't do, you would expect more. I agree on that. And I think that uh, the ECB erred on the side of caution in the first year, not to be told to be too um, unfair. So I, I ex in the future, we will see more divergence. Uh, I think your observation is there right. Um, the stress test, I'm happy to leave to, uh, to Nicholas to say a bit uh, more on, and also the, the LSE where you have a lot of, uh, looked a lot on. Then legislative uh, revision, I don't, we didn't see any big need because sometimes we have to stop uh, all the time doing, uh, doing much legal text because in the end, supervision is a lot of just executing and where needed, like with the uh, pillar at uh, two add-on, then the commission acts. But there is no reason for the overall SSM regulation to revise. And to give one big plus to Mario and his team, I always explain the SSM regulation as being very smartly drafted, because how does the ECB get the power? So if the two fight, then the ECB is finally in charge. And by setting up the regulation like that, the system is operating quite smoothly. So by choosing the ECB as the boss and not being uh, difficult about it, but just doing it, it works very well. I think the setup contributed to uh, the working. We didn't know that because we had limited space, but I think that deserves a big compliment because you always have to look at cooperation of bureaucratic bodies. I've worked in many of them in a game theoretic way. Uh, and we've seen photos where the two didn't cooperate because they had their own independence. And now they cooperate because the regulation, which is binding for everybody in the, uh, in the area, is very clear that if there is a fight, the ECB is the boss and not the national supervisor. And then my last thing is on uh, ring fencing. Uh, Francesco, I think you're completely right there. And uh, we don't have to mention name. You can just look at numbers. There where you are most in a host country. Like France is not ring fencing because there are no foreign banks in France apart from like HSBC. So there's no need to ring fence. So the host countries do it. And what we note is if the supervisors are not giving that up, banks take their own action they convert the subsidiary, which is subject to local rules, into a branch, and they escape uh, the national supervisor. So if the supervisors are not smart, so if they keep on doing it, the banks will get them out of business. And if I would be a national supervisor, I would rather remain in business than and reduce ring fencing. But the so banks. Have a few examples in the book. Yeah, we have a few examples. Nordea is talking about it. Deutsche Bank in Netherlands did it. They turned it into a branch. We will see more of it if ring fencing stays. So it is a short-term, uh, short-sighted reaction of supervisors to keep it. So it is in their own interest to be more cooperative on that. But we have to see that. Can the ECB just stop it? 
need majorities. Huh? I'll come to it. Um, yeah, a few further annotations uh, on uh, all those great questions. Um, efficiency, uh, I think your question is also about cost efficiency. So, uh, so ECB cost is reported as being 277 billion, uh, million uh, euro, not billion, uh, in, uh, in, the last, uh, in the last full year. And I mean, I think it's in the eye of the beholder whether that's a lot of money or not much money in terms of value for money. I will just note that uh, about four-fifths of the headcount in supervision, according to the ECB, in the Eurozone is in the national authorities. So I assume that more or less the same ratio applies in terms of uh, spending. In other terms, four-fifths of the spending or something like that is in the national budgets. And it's not decided at European level, because the way it works is that the national authorities decide on their own budget. So we'll probably see reallocation and changes in that space, but most of the action will be at the national, not at the European level. Uh, probably hasn't happened yet, uh, at least in most countries. I think we're seeing the beginning of it, but uh, we're only uh, in early days. And uh, well, you mentioned international comparisons. That's a fair point. I think something like that should be done uh, in the future. We haven't endeavored it. Um, Jean-Luc uh, asked about stress tests as a catalyst. I think now the core process is the SREP, so the supervisory review and evaluation process. And unlike in 2014, it's really the stress tests are seen as a, a, a a complement to the SREP that feeds into the SREP, but the, 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 the backbone is the SREP itself. So in a way that means that stress tests are a bit less prominent than they have been in 2010, 2011, and 2014, because the backbone is now in the, in the normal um, supervisory process. And personally, I think that's appropriate. Now, when you compare with the US, there's a huge difference in the way we do stress tests in Europe compared with the US. And to put it slightly simplistically, in the US, the Fed runs the models. Uh, and in Europe, the ECB doesn't run the models yet. So uh, I think uh, beyond the question of looking at stress tests, you really have to look at what sort of process of stress testing are you looking at and how intrusive is the supervisor in terms of understanding the economic model of the bank. Uh, and I think here uh, there is a long way to go if you believe that the U.S. sets a standard. Uh, you asked about less significant institutions, um, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Uh, maybe I shouldn't comment on this because I'm French, and uh, as Philippe uh, rightly said, uh, there is a bit of a biased view in France about this because France doesn't have any LSIs to speak of. Uh, but uh, but uh, so I should defer to Dirk on this. My, my, my own impression is that uh, generally speaking, our assessments of the new supervisory system applies to significant institutions. So basically, the only observation, and that's factual, is that since 2014, a number of banks have failed, and they're all LSIs. Now, there are more LSIs than SIs in the system, so you would expect that. But the four Italian banks, Dusseldorfer, Hupo, Banif, Attica is basically failing. I don't know whether it's technically failed uh, at this point. So, um, so, so basically, uh, the, in the last 18 months, the track record of LSI supervision is less stellar at the aggregated European levels than the track record of significant institutions. But I wouldn't. Uh, I think. Uh, I think there is a lot of um, granularity here. Just one last point on this. An LSI that is part of an institutional protection scheme 
uh, IPS uh, is really different from an LSI that is not part of an IPS. Mm. Because for purposes of financial stability, IPSs are SIs. And actually, this chapter on Germany makes the point, I think very forcefully, that IPSs should be supervised as if they were SIs. In other terms, there should be supervision of the entire German savings bank system, of the entire uh, uh, consolidated um, Austrian Raiffeisen system and the like, uh, because in terms of systemic risk analysis, they're just one, because they protect each other, and therefore you have to look at the risk in aggregate terms, even so, uh, so those systems have a good case that the day-to-day -day management of risk and lending decisions is genuinely decentralized. Uh, on Nick's questions about the Basel Committee, I love that question. Uh, I will be very short, however, in answering it. I think if you look at it from planet Mars, there's no justification whatsoever that national central banks remain in the Basel Committee. I mean, you have seven of them, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Netherlands, uh, Belgium, and uh, Luxembourg. And frankly, all of them should exit the Basel Committee, and it should be the ECB. Why? Not because they're not important, but just because they don't set supervisory policy anymore. And the Basel Committee is all about supervisory policy. Now, the ECB has taken a back seat in the Basel Committee. And if you look at the recent negotiations, the ECB hasn't been vocal at all and has led the different national players express their different national views. Why is that? Because over time, this thing will get settled. And the ECB knows that. So they're not short-term oriented. Let's put it that way. Is that the right stance for the greater good of the world or of Europe? It's tactical. So ECB has had to make a lot of choices in its management of relationships with the national authorities. And basically, a, a, a sort of cynical way to put it is that the ECB has had to pick their fights because they cannot fight every single issue at the same time. So they have focused on things that were more important to them and not on things that were less important to them. Now you can say Basel standards are very important, maybe, but they can be revised over time. So question about revision of SSM regulation, of course I, I re-emphasize what Dirk said. The SSM regulation was very well written and uh, kudos to the commission for that. Actually, that's particularly good news because it cannot be revised. It's adopted by unanimity. It's basically as difficult to revise as a treaty. And therefore, thanks God that the commission did such a good job because it cannot be revised like a normal directive. Um, let me see uh, Jol's question on Central and Eastern Europe. I refer to the Austrian chapter, which is critical on this. Uh, Francesco's question on ring fencing. Uh, I said I would answer this. Uh, the, the, the ECB is also a culprit. It's not only national authorities. So this connects to my uh, answer to Nick. The ECB has not gotten rid of geographical ring fencing in its policies. It still applies a liquidity ratio at the entity level, not just at the group level, which is one of the definitions of liquidity ring fencing. Why is that? It's the same thing. I mean, they don't want to force a big fight in the supervisory board, whereas they don't necessarily have a majority on this issue. Uh, and so they are going gradual. Uh, it's clear to us that, uh, and I think Dirk and I, uh, um, like on most issues, almost all issues, uh, are on the same page here. So ECB should get rid of geographical ring fencing, but it hasn't done yet because they are managing, they are massaging this evolving consensus with national authorities. It's frustrating for 
uh, if you look at it from a European level, but uh, if you put yourself in the shoes of the ECBs, maybe that's um, not so surprising. Finally, on your questions about institutions, well, is it right that the SSM is looking at the macro environment and at the governance of the banks? Yes, of course. This is part of the prudential business. So there is no controversy whatsoever in there, uh, in my view. And in terms of state aid, uh, I think it's very clear, and I talk uh, uh, under uh, Mario's uh, control here, that the SSM uh, recognizes the uh, uh, authority of the Commission over state aid and, uh, and uh, just uh, you know, defers to the Commission on state aid control matters. So I don't think there is any issue here. Maybe on the bank capital, just to be clear, the reply is no, the short end, because uh, obviously, actually, it's quite the reverse, no? The fact that you have uh, the banks are five or six times above the capital requirement is very good, because they can decide to reduce it. And even if you increase the capital requirement, the capital level may not matter. The point I was trying to make is that uh, there is space in the system if excess capital is a point for... Uh, is a problem for lending. There is space in the system that the banks can use without anybody telling it to them. All right. I think this brings us to the end of, of our session today. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for your interest in the paper. Please uh, use it as a start to read this book. Uh, not, uh, I think it's really a rich book with lots of information in there. Uh, and thank you in particular to the country authors. Uh, to Peter Verhoek and to Mario Nava for discussing today our work. Thank you. Thank you.